Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. President Joe Biden, elected with the crucial support of minority voters, promised that racial equity would be a priority woven through his administration's policies. On January 20th of this year, Inauguration Day, the White House issued an executive order on advancing racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government. It read in part, equal opportunity is the bedrock of American democracy, and our diversity is one of our country's greatest strengths. So, as we near the end of 2021, how are the administration and the country progressing on issues from voting rights to healthcare disparities laid bare by the COVID pandemic? And where exactly are we heading in 2022? Charles Blow has been sharing his thoughts, opinions, and questions about these very issues as a columnist at the New York Times and in his position as anchor on the Black News Channel. In an October New York Times column, he wondered if President Biden is being tepid about fighting to pass voting rights legislation, even if it means eliminating the filibuster. And he joins Equal Time to review the politics of equity in 2021 and beyond. So welcome. Welcome to Equal Time, Charles. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I'm a guest on Black News Channel's Prime with Charles Blow. You're the one asking the question, so this is a nice change. So thank you. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm out of sorts. Yeah, I'm, I'm not asking what this uh, Well, I really want to start a little bit with uh, the promises of President Biden, because after minority voters uh, proved the crucial factor in a close election, he promised to make equity a priority in his administration's policies. In your opinion, has he kept that promise? In what ways and in which policies, or not? There are certain things uh, that that are, will be incredibly beneficial to Black people in the Build Back Better plan. Well, first, I think you know the, the this kind of uh, stimulus package in the beginning was very helpful. This infrastructure plan, you know, is still a question mark because they're basically using that to kind of block grants to states. Uh, a lot of a majority of Black people still live in states that are controlled by. Uh, Republican legislature. So, uh, well, majority live in the South. Most of those Southern states are controlled by, by Republican legislatures and Republican governors. So that creates, uh, there's a there's a question mark out there about whether or not that money will trickle down into ways that help Black people in Black communities or not. Uh, or, if, if, or if, you know, more of it will be tilted away from them, even though they get some of it, right? So, that's a question mark. Build Back Better has some provisions in it that will be incredibly helpful to Black people. But that's those are all things about spending government money right now. The, the, the rights portion has yet to be dealt with in a significant way by the White House. The right to cast a ballot to vote to have your vote counted equally to other people in your state. The White House has yet to lean in completely on this issue. That has been incredibly frustrating to me and a lot of other Black people because, you know, the reason that, you know, uh, Black people have less representation in the states where they live, majority of them live, is because... Sometimes their vote has been suppressed for years, even after the civil rights movement, even when uh, the Voting Rights Act was intact, it's no longer intact. There was still suppression. Now it's, 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 
on, you know, steroids. And if I cannot control the, my local governments, if my vote does not carry the same weight as a white person on the other side of town or the other side of my state or in another county, then I have, then, then, then everything else is just ephemeral. That is the thing that is very frustrating to some people. Now, what the Biden administration will tell you is that they are putting things in order. They're, first of all, they will highlight the things that they're trying to pass now that would help Black people. But then they'll say, we just need to do these things in a particular order so that we can get everything done. So they, they're putting off, and Biden has said this explicitly, this is not a secret, explicitly putting off weighing in heavily on changing the filibuster until after the Build Back Better and spending bills are passed, if they pass. But here's a problem. There's a legislative calendar, right? So, so, you know, right now it's very doubtful that the Build Back Better thing will even happen by Christmas, which is the Schumer self-imposed deadline. So now you're thinking about pushing that into next year. There are people, the uh, people are already starting to run under these racially gerrymandered districts. The places like Texas, they start voting in February. It's early voting. No judge is going to say after votes have already been cast that you have to now redo those ballots to cast them in a different district. They're, even if they, they say that they're racially gerrymandered, they're going to they're gonna be implemented after votes start to be cast, maybe in the next cycle. So it's really a problem. Yeah, I, I want to just dig into that because, as you say, democracy might be the most pressing issue in front of us. When you look at these voting rights uh, laws or these voting laws in states that restrict voting, they shift control of who counts the votes uh, and the incidence of intimidation toward a lot of these nonpartisan election workers is truly alarming. We've seen all the videos. And then there's the redistricting and the gerrymandering uh, that's reducing the voting strength of voters of color, even when they're responsible for state's growth, like in North Carolina, like in Texas. So passing voting rights legislation, if it means a carve-out or elimination of the filibuster, as you point out, does not seem to be a priority of many Democratic leaders, even though folks like Majority Whip James Clyburn, who's been on this show a couple of times screaming about it, have been sounding the alarm. So what is the solution and what is at stake? Well, see, I see no uh, immediate solution other than the White House literally throwing everything, all of its weight in this direction, right? So I, uh, the, the, the courts would take too long, even if they would be amenable. Uh, Texas has been sued pretty much every time they have redistributed. Sometimes they will, some people win a couple of, of the cases, sometimes not. So it's, uh, even, it's, like, it's like a strainer. Even when you catch some things, some things still strip, slip through. Right. So it's not every case that you bring is successful. We kind of point to ones where the, you know, the, the their su- Supreme Court in the state will say, oh, you know, you did this because of race. And people are like, ha, ha, ha. Yeah. But all there's like 13 other ones that nobody said any ha, ha, ha's about. And they really got through. So I don't see the courts as a complete fix because they have to be challenged individually one by one. If they win, they win individually one by one. That is not a national stat strategy of protection. The Supreme Court is not going to say we're getting rid of uh, you know uh, the way that you're drawing uh, uh, districts in the states. That's just not. That's, there's no president that says they're going to do it. This, the legislature has to do that. So you have to have some protections, legislative protection on a federal level. The only way you get that that I can see at this point is that you have to alter 
or eliminate the filibuster. The only way you can do that is that the holdouts have to be pressured into doing it. And the only people who can apply that pressure is the White House. Everybody else has tried. We've been, people have been demonstrating. Reverend Barber has been out there, you know, everywhere he can be. Everybody's in the streets. Celebrities are leading, leading, lending their uh, voices to the, to the struggle. Columnists write about that. None of that's moving Manson. Manson is in a state that went overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. He feels no pressure from liberals whatsoever to change his mind. The only person who can help to change that mind is President Biden. And he may not even be doing it, but he at least has to try. Now, you and I, uh, I want to turn to a, another issue that's also uh, crucial, and that's the policing and criminal justice. Because we saw that after the murder of George Floyd, so many Americans took to the streets protesting. But we've seen that broad-based enthusiasm fade in the past year after Derek Chauvin was convicted. And a lot of people thought, well, case closed. But, and with homicides at their highest in the country in more than two decades, a lot of calls for criminal justice reform have totally withered. Even that big bill that there was a compromise bill in Congress that had support from members of law enforcement went nowhere. Uh, so what's next on that issue? Well, first of all, I would like to say that that the enthusiasm among white people cooled within months of of the of the so protests of that summer. So they it did not wait until George Floyd the verdict in George Floyd case. Uh, and so what what ended up happening was at the same time, you know, legislation and getting things on ballots just takes time, and so. By the time that a lot of the police reforms actually made it onto the ballot, uh, the COVID-related crime wave of, of I, w- I don't want to say crime wave, I want to say uh, homicide wave, wave because many violent crimes have not increased. In fact, they have decreased, uh, but, but homicides have increased. And so you had this rise in homicides at the same time that you were finally able to get things onto the ballot and they collided. And conservatives were already saying, worst thing in the world, worst slogan in the world. But also Democrats got nervous. And a lot of the operatives like James Carvel started trashing anything related to defund the police and wokeness and woke whatever he was saying. Uh, uh, Mr. Obama was also saying, this is not a good slogan. We don't like the, it doesn't sound right. You scare people off. Everybody started saying, you can't do this. You scare people off. This is at the same time that this legislation was in the Senate and they're fickle and blow with the wind. And so Tim Scott's negotiating one side. He fills the tea leaves and and, and there's when, you know, there's a pan in his back from his Republican colleagues saying this is a no go. We don't have to do this anymore. And he started making demands that could not be made and, you know, could not be compromised in good conscience. And Democrats just said, you know what, you don't really want anything anyway. We're walking away from this. But what that signals to black people is this is a real problem. And the White House kind of stayed on the sidelines even in that. They kind of just waited for something to show up on their desk. It didn't come. And they kind of just, you know, it was like, oh, we wish it would happen. Oh, we're still going to try to do things. What are you going to try to do? You can't try to do anything. Just This is a legislative fix. You can do, you can do more, you know, nibble around the edges with, uh, 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 presidential, um, what am I trying to say, Mary? You know, the uh, executive orders, executive yeah. orders, but you know, executive orders, anyone that he signs and let next person can rescind yeah. is not a real fix. So, you know, it, it's frustrating. It's really frustrating to see the things that, you know, would really be impactful and last a generation. 
not happen. And, you know, to see the only, the, the, the kind of the only things in play and really being pushed by the White House be you know, the things that would make Biden into the next FDR. And I'm like, okay, that's nice to have that ambition to want to be the person who re- remakes the, the country's infrastructure and, you know, a- and do some many new deals and some many, you know, helpful things. But, you know, there, there, there's a particular uh, ego in that, you know, I understand the psychology of the president's the presidency, which is I'm only going to be president one time. Let me just swing for the fences on the things that I really care about. I may not get this chance again. I understand that that could be happening in his head, but maybe, you know, with every presidency, you're overtaken by real life events. And the real life event that is overtaking this presidency is a rollback of of civil rights, constitutional rights that is almost without precedent, definitely without precedent in the last 50 to 100 years. Like it is it is enormous. Not only is it voting rights uh, legislation that that is springing up all across the country uh, and that is uh, curtailing the the political power of people of color, not just black, but also Hispanic. You see now that what's happening around abortion rights, women, you know, there's a lot of women who just thought, I never thought I had to fight for this again. I never thought I'd live in a, lived in my lifetime where I had to tell my daughter or whatever that a civil right that you had is being taken away. Yes, it is. You know, Texas, they're still letting, they're just playing this game in Texas about like, oh, we just, we're going to let you keep playing around on the lower course, but we're going to leave this in place, right? Uh, but the Mississippi thing is the one that people are really worried about because, the, you know, I listened to those oral arguments and it did sound like, yeah, they're, re- they're very open to this and it very well may push back down to the states that they will restrict this right. But basically, the bigger thing is, Nullification. That is the big argument in that Mississippi case. Do states have the right to nullify constitutional rights to individuals granted by the federal level, either the judiciary or the, the legislature? And if, if that Supreme Court decision basically affirms that, then you are back into a states' rights situation that is not dissimilar from the beginning of Jim Crow. The language is the same. The language is the same. And um, I, I want to go back to something you just said, that so many Democrats are afraid when it comes to pushing these in some ways. And you and I have both written about the word woke and how it's been weaponized and twisted, as well as terms such and concepts like critical race theory and Black Lives Matter to raise the anxiety of those who fear losing power in an America that the census said is growing less white. And the tactic is definitely based in bad faith, but it still can be effective. And we see some Democrats saying, you, you know, pushing away from that. So how should Democrats, progressives, moderates, and the opposition to these policies and this direction of the country fight that perception and convince voters to concentrate not on the slogans, but what's going on, on policy, on the state of democracy. Philosophically, I am mortified, enraged by the idea that you would tell me that the language I use to describe discrimination and, and, uh, and its extreme oppression, I cannot use because it makes the people who are generally in the class of people doing the oppression angry. 
Like I'm like I I, I like I chafe at that so badly because the as you just described it in your question, it is not even the content of what is at issue in these issue in these questions or these uh, situations that people are arguing about. They're arguing about the, there is a war of language, and so at a certain point, you're basically saying. There is no language that we will allow for you to use that directly describes or articulates your dilemma. You must use the approved language of the people who are made uncomfortable by the fact that you are even expressing your pain and your suffering. And I'm like, what world is that in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I noticed too when they were talking to parents, they about what's taught in schools about our history. They generally uh, center white parents. You don't see a lot of black parents or Hispanic parents or Asian American pa- parents Man, in the discussion. These parents haven't been to a parent teacher conference in twenty years. If you don't know <laughs> that that was no critical uh, race theory being taught at that school, and you were able to go hook a lot of sink up for that. You have not been to a parent-teacher conference since you had a baby. Every time we say there's a debate about critical race theory, we are being we are lying, being complicit, and being dangerous instruments of this campaign. Because it is not a debate about critical race theory. It is a debate, if there is a debate, it is a debate about Black history, Native history, Hispanic history, and the degree to which White supremacy has impacted those histories. That's the deb- if there's a debate, that's what it is. You're not against critical race theory. You are against black history. How do you see your role as a columnist and anchor as we head into 2022, which with America at a crossroads, uh, political, social, economic, uh, all of that? Well, I mean, I I always think uh, about writing. Um, I mean, James Baldwin said he, he bears witness. And I try to keep that in mind. Like, my job is to bear witness to, to what's happening and to record it. Uh, and, and as a person who writes books, I rely on, you know, the 100-year-old newspaper clip. So I go back to figure out what was happening at the time and try to get this. And I, I always keep in my mind that eventually somebody, 100 years from now, when I'm de- dead and gone, may be writing about this period. And I want them to know that if they ever come across what I was writing, that they registered that I was outraged by it and this is the way that I saw it. So I, I do look at it as recording the best as I can, forming arguments about what I think I dislike and why that is. If activists or po- political people can use that in some way, great. But that is not, I don't think that's my role. My role is to really make sure that it does not go, that does not pass us without comment. Your recent column, the one that's up now, you state without question that we're edging closer to a civil war. So are you, well, obviously you're worried. Do you have any predictions? I know it's hard <laughs> to, to predict anything. I mean, some people, some people think we're already in one, right? Uh, yeah. they, they, they call it a soft civil war. Uh, we're not, I mean, we're not at this point talking about, you know, 100,000 people in fields shooting at each other at close range. We are, however, talking about we are talking about the capture of political systems 
by people who want to oppress majorities of people. Right. That there's no other way to describe that. What what is happening with these with, with these uh, county and and uh, regional board election boards it is to carry out what Donald Trump tried to carry out the last time and was unsuccessful, in, which is get them not to certify the actual votes if you don't like them. I, I don't know what that is other than being taken over. Like that 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 that's that is a declaration of political war. Um, the, the system will not work for you if I don't like what the system what the system produces, uh, and 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 there's just so many fronts on which that is true, where people are trying to capture the systems that that you, 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 all the way you're not worried is that you're not awake, and you know I hate to make an allusion to wokeness as we already had uh, said it, but. I'm woke. I, I listen, I don't mind woke. Like you say whatever you want to say. People say, you know, AOC said nobody over 30 is saying woke anymore. Well, I, you know, I'm 50. I can say what I want to say. And that's what it is. Lead belly, stay woke. That was years ago, right? <laughs> exactly. you, you stay aware, stay aware. Um, and also, you know, you talk about war, but we had January 6th, the uh, insurrection, which is being investigated. And you've also written about these cases, uh, whether it's Kyle Rittenhouse or the murderers of Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and most of the defendants in January 6th are white. Uh, so you, you've placed it in a larger context of race, justice, and vigilantism. So when you talk about people aren't shooting at one another, we do have these things happening. So do you think we're going to see more of this kind of activity? And I mean, can we stop this? Right. So, so there are many strands that should worry us in America. One is uh, uh, an adjustment of the laws to accept and protect vigilantes. And then there is the, the political sentiment that exists largely on the right that celebrates the vigilante, right? So we had periods where there were Black vigilantes who Black Panthers showed up with guns at the Sacramento State House, and white people flipped out. And they passed bills. Ron Reagan, this, in California, it's called the Mumford Act. That was that was uh, um, Ronald Reagan that signed that bill because they were like, we can't have people showing up. Uh, this is not cool. Whatever the language they use, it wasn't civilized. Whatever they said, uh, but because it was black people who showed up in a place of white power with weapons, and that has has that idea has long scared uh, a lot of white people from the time that there were slave rebellions that. Black people would arm themselves and rebel in some way that would put white people in danger. So they passed laws to prevent that from happening. But at the moment that that we, you know, the world kind of realized, uh, and we're just in the last fifty years that that mass violence—maybe I would say seventy years—mass violence, gun violence was mostly intimate. That people kill people close to them. That people didn't, generally speaking, in a mass way, travel to commit uh, uh, gun violence. That with most white people were killed by white people, most black people were killed by black people. It was in community, so that threat seemed less plausible. But what became more plausible to them 
was that the country was moving away from them demographically, and there may come a time when they lose the power, the, they, they no longer control the, 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 the pillars of power, and that the government then would become a threat to them. And so then became this mass move towards allowing weapons of all sorts and all sorts of ways in all sorts of places. And on the vigilante front, there became, you know, this castle doctrine became, mm-hmm. you know, the, the governing doctrine that, that allowed Zimmerman to shoot Trayvon. But now you have those very same rules everywhere. So not only you can carry a weapon everywhere, you feel threatened in any way. You can shoot somebody and be justified in it and get, get off in court around it. So we, we have now this vigilante sensibility because people believe that some the day may come. I mean, it's very apocalyptic. People don't believe the day they may come, that they may need to defend home, com- community, and possibly country, and they have to do it themselves against the government itself. Yeah, all your stand your ground laws. Now it's just, it doesn't have to be in your house anymore, as you say, if you just have a little bit of a fear. Um, we're talking about the health of the country. And since we are in the middle still, uh, we're not over COVID, oh, many people would like it to be. Um, I want to talk about the actual health. And the pandemic, as usual, did point out some of the, highlighted the inequities that have always existed uh, in so many ways. So, how do you think the country is faring when it comes to closing the gap on the issue of health care? Because there's still so many communities who are lacking access uh, or don't have the resources or even insurance. Now, some, some of the spending bills that by this, this is what I was saying before, some of the things are beneficial. So uh, the spending bills would help to close some of the health gaps, mm-hmm. uh, expanding Medicaid, I think, uh, helping to pay for some medical issues. and invariably those things help black people more than other people or help poor people more than other people. Poor happens to overlap with black to an uncomfortable degree in this country. But, uh, so, so that is a real thing, but, uh, black people still die at this disproportionate rate from this disease, get it and get it and die from it at a disproportionate rate. Uh, and a lot of that probably, you know, the vast majority of that has to do with structural inequities in pre-existing healthcare issues, whether they be about the, you know, illnesses that you got because you lack access to care, whatever, uh, or that, you know, uh, poverty produces its own negative health consequences and that, that can negatively affect Black people, but also just the structural nature of healthcare in this country. A lot of black people just simply do not live close to or can get to easily a healthcare facility. So all of that is being exposed. That's not even being dealt with in any any real way right now because people are still scrambling and trying to figure out how do we get our arms around the pandemic writ large. Like how do you how do you stop this thing in a country where uh, there's a partisan divide and who wants to get vaccinated and uh, Republicans who follow Donald Trump you know, really don't like the idea of it, even though that man got got COVID and got a, a treatment for it, and I think has been vaccinated for it. So uh, it's, you know, that's all over the place. But also there is the structural issues in the Black community of distrust, and the distrust is very real and, and it's completely understandable. But also, you know, uh, there's too many of our grandmothers and grandfathers dying for us to have that level of the, the luxury of having that distrust with this particular pandemic. So it, it's, it's a problem. 
Mm-hmm. Now, do you think you've talked about uh, the president has done some good things? He has his economic agenda. He wants to be FDR, but there are other issues like democracy and like voting rights where you feel he could really put his muscle behind it. How do you think the voters, particularly the voters of color, because he did not get a majority of the white vote, uh, Joe Biden, who put him in the office, are feeling about that? Do you feel they are, are folks disappointed, frustrated? Will they just throw up their hands? Uh, what What does, is the outlook there, do you think? I think I think that there is a real danger. Well, first of all, no Republican since they've done exit polling has won an outright majority of the white vote. I mean, they've gotten fifty. They've done a fifty-fifty split, one two times, but just a full, straight-out win of the white vote. It doesn't happen, right? So you do have to focus more attention on Black, Brown, Asian people. But you know what we see is uh, there's there is disappointment. First of all, there's just lingering disappointment in the electorate. I think just because there's the COVID depression is setting in. People are just yeah. exhausted by life. Like, and so even though there's some positive economic news, which is like unemployment rates very low, generally there's income and, you know, more people have more uh, uh, saved income or in, uh, income wealth in the home. But, you know, inflation, you're eating it up. So if you go to, the t- <laughs> if, you're, if the gas price is up 50% and, you know, and, you're struggling with small margins in your family, it's eating up. So you still feel like I can't get ahead, even though I have the job and I have a little bit more cash, it all went to the, to the tank and to the grocery bag. And so now what am I going to do? So there's just this overall exhaustion that I think is impacting him. So there's some things, you know, some of it is just not all his fault, but it's just impacting him. But then there is the, 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 the legal issues that we have discussed where he could have been, he could be weighing in more heavily or forcefully in favor of and articulating that it is because he values these black, brown, Asian voters. That's also not happening. So that's a problem. And there was a recent poll, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, that had uh, Hispanic split basically even. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's a very scary thing. Uh, basically even between Democrats and Republicans in, in head of the the 2022 midterms, but also they asked if there was a rematch between Trump and Biden, who would you support? It was basically split down the middle. That's that's frightening because uh, what you realize is that there's a few things to always realize about the Hispanic population in America. The majority of Hispanic, also Asians, came after the immigration bill of 1965. So the relationship to American oppression is more is briefer. They don't have the same legacy with American oppression as Black people do. The vast majority of Black people in America are descendants of American slavery, yeah. right? So it's just it's a different our, our ways of looking at hope, uh, possibility, mm-hmm. uh, white supremacy. All are very different relationships, and so the Hispanic population from all over the world, most of them Mexico, but all over the world, their relationship to the structures in this country, not the same. And so they're not turned off completely by the white supremacy that they see, even if the man is literally talking into the, to the camera saying rapists and murderers and taking the babies from their parents at the board. Like yeah. for me, it's like, that would be like a no-go. Apparently, it's not for a lot of Hispanics. So that should be that should be scaring them too. 
You know, I also, in my politics columns, I weave culture in a lot. Uh, and I have to ask you about the opera based on your memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones, composed by Terrence Blanchard with libretto by Casey Lemons. And it's the first opera by a Black composer staged at the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. Can't get over that. So how did it feel to experience that historic moment? And how was it, do you think, a piece of understanding the lived experience of Black Americans? Because in a sense, do you think that culture can be a conduit for change? I was delighted with the incredible work of Terrence and Cassie and um, James Robinson, who's the creative director at the St. Louis uh, Opera Company, which is the first company that they commissioned it and and uh, did the opera first in 2016, I think. It is, it is a complicated thing for me because on the one hand, great that this work, and I always say Terrence and Kessie's and Jim's work because, you know, I wrote the book, that was my work. So they created a new work of art from that. My, about my own response to it, it it's flattering, it's wonderful. Um, but it's also like, you know, that wasn't a very comfortable period of my life. And I, it was buried and mm-hmm. I resurrected it in 2000, you know, to publish the book in 2014. So that because I thought I could help other people and I've kind of buried it again and then it resurrected it to put it on the mm-hmm. book. So I just can't stay in it because yeah. you know, I'm like, it's not really me now. It's, it's not comfortable. You know, it is, it is on some level a trauma. And so you can't relive a trauma mm-hmm. constantly because it's not healthy for you. So yeah. I saw it once in St. Louis and I saw it once at the Met. Yeah. And I I blessed my friends with the free tickets I had to every show because I was like, <laughs> I'm not going again. <laughs> well, you put it out there for the rest of the world. Uh, we've yes. had a pretty wide-ranging conversation, but I do want to ask, because I ask all my guests at equal time, what question have I not asked uh, that I should have? Because you really have some things you want to uh, say on that issue. I think you, you have been so thorough. You have done such a great job. You've asked every question. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I try to get to it all when I'm on Prime, too, I tell you. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Charles Blow, for coming on our listeners for our last show of the year on Equal Time. We wanted to take a comprehensive look about the state of America and where it's going heading into 2022. And we knew that with from your writing and from your work and from your books that you were going to have some really thoughtful things to say. And I, and I really have enjoyed this conversation kind of alarmed at some of it as well. Um, And we really don't know what's going to happen in 2022, but we know that it's going to be a very interesting year. So thank you again for appearing on equal time, Charles Blow. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So what's keeping me up at night? The holidays, of course. Family and friends and wishing all the best. Even when the issues Charles and I talked about, especially voting rights, are far from solved. But as I watched the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade with my son, not side by side, but connected by phone line, it was still fun. And I was grateful for tradition and memories and all that unites rather than divides Americans. I'll go to sleep with a smile, for a while at least. Have a wonderful holiday season, Equal Time listeners. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. 
and we'll have plenty to talk about in 2022. Promise. Thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.